Chronicle the Revolution. WPFW, Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. I'm Winsor Muntali, host of Africa Now, and you're tuned to member-supported WPFW, Washington. From WPFW News in Washington, this is Monday Morning QB, a news program with a point of view. Today is Monday, February 19th, 2024. I'm Asia Beckham. And I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Today on the show, the stories that inspire and the stories that remind us of why fighting back matters. Plus, how we remember DC social movements and musical history. All that and more. Plus, we are in Pledge Drive. Call 202-588-9739 and make a donation to support Jazz and Justice Radio in the nation's capital. Stay with us. This morning, we want to re-air some of our favorite pieces, and we hope your favorites from our archives. Because it's Black History Month, our theme this morning is history. Do we make choices that celebrate the black experience in our nation's history, that offer more inclusive paths forward, or do we continue in ways that reaffirm white supremacy? In this first piece, filed in December, Sue Goodwin reports on how one project is turning a symbol of one of the worst times in American history into something transformative. In recent years, across the southern United States, communities have been taking down Confederate monuments but few have attracted as much attention as that of Robert E. Lee. The 26-foot bronze sculpture of the Confederate general in uniform atop his horse was installed in 1924 in what was then known as Lee Park in Charlottesville, Virginia. In February 2017, the Charlottesville City Council decided to remove the statue which led to considerable controversy in a community where many remain proud of Virginia's native son and connect to the lost cause sensibility he has come to signify. In August 2017, the statue was at the center of the Unite the Right rally, which drew white nationalists to Charlottesville to protest its removal. In an act of violence that became deadly, an avowed white supremacist drove his car into a crowd of counter-protesters, injuring dozens and killing 32-year-old Heather Heyer. The statue was removed in 2021 and donated to the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center, which initiated the Swords into Plowshares project, which is now leading the effort to transform the statue from a symbol of hate into a community expression of inclusion. Historian Jelaine Schmidt is director of the University of Virginia's Memory Project and a member of the Swords into Plowshares Steering Committee. On October 26th, she led a press conference to announce that the process of transformation has begun. So today, we're here to announce that we've melted the Lee statue. This moment marks the beginning of the next phase, which will be defined not by the struggle to remove something negative. Now we embark upon an opportunity to create something beautiful and positive. Swords into Plowshares melted the Lee statue because we want to expand the national, indeed international, conversation about monumental art in public spaces. Creativity and art can express democratic, inclusive values. We believe that art has the potential to heal. So how did we get from 1924 to where we are today? We spoke with Jelaine Schmidt to gain a better understanding of this movement to make a new choice on how Charlottesville will remember its own history. It's a story that begins with understanding exactly when many of these monuments went up in the first place, which wasn't until after Reconstruction. And they come into the public square as a sort of triumphant proclamation about Jim Crow values and this supposed kind of reestablishment of so-called Southern values. And if you read the installation 
ceremony that some of the speeches that are given, there's a lot of re in there. It's like, you know, reinventing, reinterpreting, reestablishing, you know. So especially you get to like about the 1890s, the 19 teens, that's kind of the heyday of when these Confederate statues were erected, installed in public squares, parks, courthouse lawns. In Charlottesville's case, ours were a bit later in the early 1920s. And it was during the time when more and more of the Confederate veterans were dying. And there was a sense among, especially among groups such as the United Daughters of the Confederacy, that in order to instruct the young, once there was no more kind of firsthand accounts of the Civil War, that it was best to have these monuments in public spaces, kind of for the edification of the white Southern youth. The Unite the Right rally in 2017, protesting the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue, helped galvanize the movement to remove more Confederate monuments from the American landscape. But as Jelaine Schmidt explains, opposition to these symbols of white supremacy began long before that. There was always black folks who were critical of these statues. Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, John Mitchell, just so many others who, at the time these statues were being installed, were very critical publicly. You know, we get to the 21st century, then those voices come more and more to the fore. Folks, you know, African-American activists, scholars such as myself, who really started making a more forceful case for the removal of these statues. Once the Robert E. Lee statue was removed from where it stood for close to 100 years, it was the job of the Swords into Plowshares project to decide what to do with it. And that was a process that began with acknowledging what they didn't want. We didn't want this statue to just go to another community and still broadcast those values because somebody in this subsequent community didn't have responsible curation practices. We tried to find a museum or a responsible battlefield, and and the only ones who who want it are are the ones who, uh, you know, kind of have a neo-Confederate lean, you know, to their interpretation. So then we started thinking, well, we know we don't want it in public. It doesn't belong in public space. It can't go to a museum. Does it just stay in storage? And, And so the problem with this is that this statue, it's a material object that exists in the world. It is literally and figuratively taking up space. And so wherever it is stored, there's no morally neutral space. No, no matter where it is, different ethical decisions are being made about the upkeep of the statue or the space that it's occupying. So then we thought, how about if we took it and just transformed it, melted it down, kind of took it back to its raw form and allowed it to become something new, something different a work of public art that would express Charlottesville's 21st century values about racial inclusion and democracy. So we said, you know, let's try that. Let's take that risk. Let's take this and make sure that in any future form, these materials will only express our values. Eventually, the decision was made to cut the statue into pieces before being melted in a furnace that reached temperatures of more than 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It now exists in the form of hundreds of blocks of bronze that bear the imprint of the project's intended message. Some of them are imprinted with a bird motif from our Swords into Plowshares logo, which has kind of a a profile of the Robert E. Lee statue. And the head of the horseman is being kind of transformed into a flock of birds that's flying away. And so some of the ingot molds have these birds on them as well. And then there's another that has an imprint of the words swords into plowshares. This is a a verse from the prophet Isaiah, which says that they shall turn their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and they shall study war no more. You know, and it's just really a beautiful conception about the possibilities of transformation, you know, of taking something that was a weapon that enforced domination and subjugated others' will, you know, under a blade, to take that tool of war and to transform it into something that is a tool that cultivates the earth, that brings forth sustenance, plowshare, you know, a pruning hook, something that nourishes the community. You know, it's a very rich symbol of of what we want to do here. We're not erasing history. We're transforming an object so that it aligns more with our values for racial inclusion and a democratic public space.
So yes, it's a very deliberate use of of this phrase from uh, the prophet Isaiah. Now, the Swords into Plowshares project is in its next phase, which is to decide what form this transformation will take. In keeping with the original proposal, organizers held community listening sessions in barbershops, places of worship, schools, and other businesses throughout Charlottesville. With that community input, the project will select an artist to design a new public artwork. So what happens now is we present our findings from the community engagement study, present that to the community of Charlottesville and to the Charlottesville City Council, and we put out a request for proposal for artists to submit their ideas for what what they would uh, propose to do uh, with these materials in terms of creating a work of art that would then be given back to the city of Charlottesville. We would like to, by the end of 2024, you know, about a year from now, have an artist selected from this process. And then 2024 is the 100th anniversary of the installation of the Lee statue. And then it would be wonderful if we were able to install a new work of art in 2027, which would be the 10-year anniversary of the Unite the Right rally attacks on our community, uh, you know, in which various fascists and neo-Confederates came and, uh, you know, kind of drawn by, uh, quote-unquote, defending uh, the Lee statue, you know, in August of, of 2017. So uh, on the 10-year anniversary of, of that violent rally, we will have a work of art, you know, that is, a, you know, a piece of beauty and that's a rallying point uh, for our community and our, and our more inclusive values. So if you want to learn more about the Swords into Plowshares project and what happens next to the Robert E. Lee statue, here's how. We would love to have people follow us online at, at uh, Sip Seville, that's S-I-P-C-V-I-L-L-E dot com. Sip Seville, that stands for Swords into Plowshares. We'd love to have uh, people support. We struggled for so long, you know, having debates in our community in 2016 about what to do with these statues and then in 2017 being attacked and then the resulting criminal trials and civil lawsuits that ensued from the the violence and a lot of trauma and political turmoil too, you know, in in Charlottesville that, that, you know, so we've been dealing with a lot. And so now it just finally feels like the path has been cleared and we're actually going forward now. It's very gratifying. That was historian Jelaine Schmidt, director of the University of Virginia's Memory Project and a member of the Swords into Plowshares Steering Committee talking about the melting down of the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville, Virginia. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Greetings, listeners. We'll be back with our regular scheduled program in just a few moments, but we want to take a moment to ask for your support for this program and this station. Our goal this hour is $500. We won't get there without you. Remember to call us at 202-588-9739, or you can pledge online anywhere at any time at wpfwfm.org. And now bringing in Sue Goodwin, the interim news director at WPFW and reporter on that piece about Robert E. Lee that you just heard. Sue, why did you select this piece to re-air this week? So this is about taking a symbol of one of the worst times in American history and turning it into something transformative. That's inspiring. And with this powerful medium, of radio and platform of WPFW, we get to actually hear the voices of the people making this happen, how they think, how they're organizing their work. And it's also a powerful reminder that culture matters. What we see every day, what we hear every day, it matters. So that's why we are in this pledge drive, because you, our listeners, give us the power to continue broadcasting every day and inspire change with our reporting. The number to call is 202-588-9739, or you can pledge online at wpfwfm.org. 
And uh, Asia, I want to toss it back to you. When you think about the stories you've covered, why are they worthy of support? Definitely, Sue. My interest is to always put out content that's different than other stations in Washington, D.C. I remember my interest in journalism starting at the teenage years and wanting to share stories that just weren't covered on the television station, local news, positive stories. And so I try to bring that every week, some arts and culture, some color, uh, different perspectives, whether that be the Barbados Poet Laureate or the inaugurate Chicago Poet Laureate. I want to make sure that our listeners get a little variety of everything. And every day, our team works together on newscasts and this weekly program, Monday Morning QB. Our goal is to partner with our listeners and reach a greater awareness of events happening around the world and a greater understanding of why they're happening. And that's why we ask our listeners to support us. Our goal is $500 and we cannot do this without you. This cannot be said enough. You all make this possible. WPFW is a listener supported radio. That means it is our financial responsibility to keep the station on air and allows this program and this entire news department to fulfill our commitment to you. Sue, I wonder, what do you hope to cover uh, during the elections? And what can listeners look forward to during this general election period? Well, of course, we don't want to get lost in who said what about whom and who insulted whom, etc. We want to talk about the issues that should be defining this election. And hopefully we'll hear from you. What are the issues that matter to you? But that's what we will be bringing to you through this election period, because this is our moment to hear our voices. And WPFW is where we can hear our voices, but only with your support. Give us a call, 202-588-9739. And we're online anytime, wpfwfm.org. And give what you can. Keep WPFW on the air. Keep us doing what we do and carry us through this all-important political moment when there's so much effort to mislead us, to misinform us. Asia, when you think about this election coming up, what are you going to be looking for? What I'm looking forward to most during this election period is how Middle Eastern descendants and Muslim voters will be voting considering the Hamas-Israel war and how the U.S. has funded uh, the, the war itself. And in addition to that, how Black voters are viewing Vice President Kamala Harris's impact so far and her influence, and if it's enough to get Black voters to the polls. Um, I'm curious how uh, voters would turn out, but also if they think that this current seated vice president and president are doing enough. Okay. If you, our listeners, want to hear those stories, you know what to do. Give us a call, 202-588-9739. Help us hit our goal this hour, 202-588-9739. Pledge online, wpfwfm.org. And thank you for your support. It means so much to us. In another story about honoring the legacy of those who came before, here's a story from our beloved Askia Muhammad on, at the time, a newly unveiled six-foot statue in honor of the first African-American female White House reporter at the museum in Washington in 2018. Trained as a teacher, Alice Allison Dungan began her journalism career at the Chicago Defender. From there, she went on to become the Washington bureau chief for the Associated Negro Press, where she wrote for over 100 African-American newspapers. She received her White House credentials in 1947. Racism and sexism came with the job, as well as the pressure of being the only one in the press corps to consistently report on concerns of people sorely underrepresented throughout her profession. Her experience echoes for those who followed in her footsteps, including her own, the late Askia Muhammad the former news director of WPFW, and the former host of this program. Askia came to Washington to cover the White House, and this is his story. When I came to Washington 41 years ago, I thought I was, as the saying goes, P. 
picking in high cotton. That's because I was assigned to be the White House correspondent for the Chicago Daily Defender. Even though only a few people outside of the south side of Chicago, most of whom were black, knew of or cared anything about the Defender, I was following in the footsteps of my friend, the legendary Ethel Payne, who may be the last black reporter to have had a major public policy effect from a perch at the White House Press Gallery. Ms. Payne worried Presidents Kennedy and Johnson in particular about everything related to this country's civil rights policies and more. And because of the national tender spot about race in those days, she was able to shame those powerful leaders into addressing some of the nation's neglected problems. Of course, she stood on the shoulders of Alice Dunnigan, the brave first black reporter credentialed to cover the White House and Congress. Without black writers like Dunnigan and Payne and others before me, the world would likely never have known the lies, the tricks, the buffoonery employed by white folks to keep the black man in his lowly place. They exposed the powerful with their persistent questions about this country's failure to deliver on the promises of the American dream to the downtrodden. I had a so-called White House hard pass for 28 years, but I was booted from the Corps because I did not attend the ritual daily briefings often enough. At least that's what they told me. I stopped attending those snore fests because, as one very influential White House reporter once told me, it's a news-free zone. I did have some adventures there, though. One January night, I stood for hours in frigid weather outside of Blair House with reporters Glenn Ford and Tamu White waiting for a promised and delivered interview with Egyptian President Anwar Sadat. Another time with Tamu White, she and I literally hid in the bushes until Mayors Marion Barry and Richard Hatcher walked up so we could complain to them that President Carter hadn't called on any black reporters in his just-concluded press conference. At his next press conference, though, the president called on three of us. But now... The president and the elites in this country have no shame about their wicked policies, and most black journalists now represent not the black press or the progressive media, but rather corporate-sponsored outlets, and they are assigned the same stories their white colleagues are assigned. They are not assigned to dig for policies concerning the police murders of innocent black people or about race discrimination in housing and education and employment or about the disproportionate rates of black incarceration or about the wealth gap. And even with black journalists like April Ryan raising cane at the White House press conferences and briefings nowadays, there is no follow-up national outrage about the scandals exposed. But my searing memory... It's from maybe 10 years ago. It was on one of my last days in the news-free zone. I overheard a black correspondent tell a colleague how hard it was for her to find daycare for her children, even though she was paying then $1,000 a week. I thought, hey, I could come out ahead if I took care of her children because I didn't even earn $1,000 a week as a credentialed White House correspondent. And unlike Alice Dunnigan, for whom a statue has been dedicated at the museum, and Ethel Payne, who was commemorated on a U.S. postage stamp in 2004, I can only take my White House memories and a dollar, and I can get a senior coffee at the fast food restaurant at 17th and Pennsylvania Avenue, a block from the News Free Zone. Our next piece, from September 2022, addresses perspectives on national landscape symbols that celebrate the Confederacy. Here's Asia Beckham. Since the death of George Floyd, many Confederate symbols and monuments are being taken down. 73 Confederate monuments were removed or renamed in 2021, according to a Southern Poverty Law Center report. That 2021 record said that over 700 Confederate monuments remain standing in the U.S. and its territories. 
In some states, no Confederate monument exists in public spaces. Maryland's last public Confederate monument, a 13-foot-tall copper sculpture featuring a boy holding a Confederate flag and names of the men from the Eastern Shore County who joined the Confederacy and died during the Civil War, were removed in March 2022, reported U.S. News. Some who are advocating for the removal of statues include Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who called for 11 Confederate figures to be moved from the U.S. Capitol, which led to four portraits being removed. The NAACP has organized across the country by filing lawsuits and protesting for schools to be renamed and flags and statues to be removed. Some Confederate memorabilia supporters suggest that history must be preserved and not removed from where it was originally placed and that soldiers who fought for the South and the Civil War were buried in unmarked graves and deserve to be memorialized. Currently, a Confederate statue stands on the lawn of Matthews County Courthouse in Virginia. The county is considering gifting the statue and surrounding land to a private organization, such as the United Daughters of the Confederacy or the Sons of Confederate Veterans, which will prevent citizens in the future from determining through local elections whether to relocate or remove the statue. Here, I spoke with a local NAACP chapter's president. My name is Edith Turner. I am the local branch president of the NAACP here in Matthews County, Virginia. What are the demographics of Matthews County? Matthews County is predominantly Caucasian. There is probably 90% Caucasian, between 80 and 90%. So with the statue, uh, my understanding is that there's a Confederate statue uh, standing in the front of Matthews County Courthouse and that that statue might potentially be preserved and the ownership of the statue and the land might be transferred to um, potentially a Confederate group. Has the community reached out with any thoughts about this? Yes, the community has reached out. There's been several groups that have expressed concern about that piece of land and or the statue being given to this private group because you know most people here would like for that statue well for that piece of land because it's on the historic green in the center of town and it's public property and they would like for it to be used for something that the whole community could benefit from you authored a letter to the Board of Supervisors, um, and basically there was a point that you mentioned that it will send a message to people of color who live and work in the county uh, that they are unwelcome to Matthews County and that it's a sanctuary for white supremacists. Any response on the Board of Supervisors yet? I have not heard from any member of the Board of Supervisors. There's a public hearing later this week on Wednesday, uh, sort of what are you expecting, if anything, from the Board of Supervisors, uh, follow-up comments or actions that might follow the public hearing uh, on this Wednesday? The public hearing is basically to get the community's feel and opinions on what should happen to that piece of property. Following the public hearing is the Board of Supervisors meeting. Our hope is that they will listen to the cooler heads of the community who have asked them, you know, not to give this piece of property to um, this private group. We don't know yet, of course, what their decision will be, uh, but that is that is our hope, that they will not give this piece of property to the Confederate group. You know, we've had people who've come to town for festivals and, and other events who have not felt comfortable with the number of Confederate flags that are better up. So, you know, we want we want everybody in the community to feel comfortable, to feel welcome, to feel like they have just as much at stake in this community that we live in as anybody else. We did have conversations with Board of Supervisors because the Board of Supervisors meetings were held and that statue sits right outside of the door. So people were feeling uncomfortable going into the Board of Supervisors meeting with um, people, you know, on that statue, around that statue with guns and other weapons. 
And for a time, they moved the Board of Supervisors meetings to the high school where there was, no, you know, you could bring in your weapons, but they've moved back now to the historic courthouse. Next, we spoke with the attorney who's working on behalf of the NAACP in Matthews County. My name is Caitlin Banner and I'm Deputy Legal Director at the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. So we have not filed a lawsuit. Um, the Board of Supervisors is still debating and considering whether or not to um, give this land away. Um, they've got a public hearing uh, on the subject of giving land away uh, in the next week. Um, and what we did um, on behalf of the NAACP was to send a letter to the Board of Supervisors expressing um, our opposition to that move and explaining to them what we think some of the potential ways that that move would violate the law. The statute on the courthouse square and the giving away of that statute to pro-Confederacy groups would potentially violate the Fair Housing Act because it's the form of racial steering. By doing taking this action, the Board of Supervisors is sending a message to Black citizens and people of color in Matthews County that they do not belong, and we think that that's a real problem. Then I spoke with the Chief Commander of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. That's uh, Larry McClooney. I've been a member of the Sons of Confederate Veterans since 1995. I just recently stepped down as the Commander-in-Chief for the Sons of Confederate Veterans this past mid-July of this year. Uh, my ancestors, um, I have 20-plus Confederate soldiers who are my ancestors uh, from various states that fought during the war between 1861 and 1865. And uh, it's kind of a, a thing that uh, members in my organization we all share. Uh, we have uh, a common interest, a common brotherhood, just like our uh, ancestors did back then. I'm sort of wondering, um, can you share instances when the sons of Confederate veterans have been gifted a Confederate statue or surrounding land in the past? Sure. Um, the 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 statue that was uh, removed in Memphis, Tennessee, of Nathan Bedford Forrest was gifted to us by the city of Memphis, and basically uh, that was after a long controversial struggle over uh, whether that statue would remain uh, erected or taken down or moved to another location or whatever. Um, uh, that was given to us for our safety. Uh, care. The descendants of Nathan Bedford Forrest uh, came before us and requested that uh, we would be the caretakers of that statue. It is currently um, uh, sitting on the, the land of Elm Springs, our national headquarters in Columbia, Tennessee, and it is out in the open for public viewing, sitting out in front of our uh, an antebellum home there in Elm Springs. It is not in a statue. It is out for public viewing. But what some people have to understand is that that statue, and, and we don't refer to the statues just as statues. They are considered to be memorials. In this particular case, this particular statue was on the grave site of Nathan Bedford Forrest. And as a result, when the statue was taken down, uh, we also inherited uh, the uh, remains of General Forrest and his wife. Anyone that's going to discuss this issue, one thing you have to do is you have to leave out emotions and, and passion on it and look at the facts. And the facts are that less than 10% of the South at that time, the white, white population, actually owned slaves. Okay, That's a fact. That's not an emotional thing. Um, so with that in mind, I would challenge anybody to say that that's what the issue of the war was about. It was certainly an issue, but not the issue of the war at the time um, and why those people fought. Um, those people had a 19th century frame of mind. They were products of the time period, and we should not judge people with 21st century rose-colored glasses with our views and values today based on the views and values of that time period. So you're going to erase the fact this war ever was fought. 
you're going to erase the fact that these people have existed. You know, um, let's go back to the point about statue taken down. In Washington, D.C., there was the woke movement that wanted to take down a statue of Abraham Lincoln just because they did not like the fact that in the statue depiction shows Lincoln holding up a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation. His hand is on top of a uh, black slave that was kneeling in front of him. And that was to symbolize he was freeing that slave. But yet the woke movement said they didn't like the statue because it has the black man kneeling down beside Abraham Lincoln in chains. And they said that's a depiction of racism. And yet it was black people over 100 years ago that raised money to have that statue erected. So we're going to tear that down as well. Can you see the irony, the hypocrisy there on that? So you go on to criticize these people, sacrifice these people, and put them on the shelf of racism because of one thing that happened in their life. Forget about the multiple great things they did for this country. Uh, So we're going to ostracize uh, George Washington. We're going to ostracize Thomas Jefferson. Ostracize uh, the majority of our presidents before Abraham Lincoln. Where does it really end? A question for you here. Um, I wonder, did your family own slaves? My direct ancestor did not own slaves that fought in the war. And as far as I can tell, of the 20 people that I have researched, they did not. Although my direct ancestor was a descendant of a slave owner. So was it I'm like sorry? a great-great-grandfather or... He was uh, my four-time great-grandfather that fought in the war, my direct ancestor, and uh, he did not own slaves. But his his father did, and his grandfather did. Well, the the fifth and the sixth great-grandfather did, yes. What's the source? You mentioned that 90% of the South did not own slaves. What source is that information from? Oh, I'd have to go back and look at that. Um, You'd have to look at uh, U.S. Census records at that time and so forth. But also keep in mind that the U.S. Census records at that time uh, also reported about uh, free blacks who owned slaves. But we don't know exactly if they were black or what because a lot of the times – if they did mention colored uh, of the person, they just said colored. Uh, and colored meant anybody who was not white. Uh, you forget about the Native Americans who owned black slaves at that time. You forget about the Latinos that were in America in the South and different areas of the country who owned slaves at the time as well. So, you know, uh, when I say 90%, you know, that's a pretty much a. Not an exact figure. It could be a little bit more, could be a little less, but it's based on the U.S. Census records at the time. Just a final question here. Uh, My last question for you, there was mention that um, there was an armed group. Do you think it's ever permissible to uh, carry weapons uh, to surround a Confederate statue uh, to send a message to the community? Bye. I do not agree, nor do I disagree, because uh, the Sons of Confederate Veterans does not uphold any form of violence to carry out our our mission. But, but, but I will say this in closing: a, any organization or group, and that's the great thing about being American, has a right to protest in a peaceful manner. And we do not participate in such violent measures and so forth like that. Uh, we are a peaceful organization. We're a historical organization. We're very family-oriented. This is Asia Beckham for Monday Morning QB.
Greetings, listeners. Before we move on with the rest of today's program, we want to remind you that we are in our winter pledge drive. Our goal this hour is $500, and the simple fact is we need you, our listeners, to make sure this program and everything you hear on WPFW in news, in public affairs, can continue. We need you. Once again, our goal is $500 this hour. Joining me now to talk about how you can help us get there is producer and reporter Christopher Banger-Drowns. Hi, Sue. Hi, Chris. So once again, we are trying to reach $500. How can listeners call in? Listeners can call 202-588-9739 to make a pledge. You can do a a one-off donation or a recurring donation. That sort of monthly sustaining donation is really important to us. It signals your continued dedication, and it does help spread out your donation over time to make it uh, more affordable for you. So again, the number to call 202-588-9739. If you're out of area, 1-800-222-9739 or anywhere in the world, go online, wpfwfm.org. There's a big red Donate Now button on the left side of the screen. You've covered some pretty intense topics for this news program. You've covered a lot of ground. And the, sh- the piece we're going to hear next is about go-go music in D.C. Why did you decide that was an important piece as part of our program? Yeah, it's a great question, Sue. You know, this was one of the first pieces that I did at PFW. I I started working at the station in in summer of 2018, and this was a piece that we aired in 2019. This was right around when there was this fuss with new residents living around the Metro PCS store on Florida Ave, calling police and, and, you know, raising a ruckus to get the store to stop playing go-go music, which, as I'm sure our listeners know, is emblematic of Black cultural history in D.C., as a result of this you know, social movement that cropped up to defend the playing of go-go music, the D.C. Council enshrined go-go music as the official music of, of the district in a, in a way codifying the sort of black history of, of D.C. And so I think it was really important for us to do, to do that story because it, was, it wasn't just a story about black history because we could talk about the history of go-go music and its role in, in D.C.'s history, but it, it's also about the black current struggle for voice in the city and and the black future in the city as well. I think oftentimes, as Natalie Hopkinson will will make the point in, in this upcoming piece, black people in DC are often talk, talked about in the past tense or the, the rich black cultural history of DC is talked about only in the past tense. And I think DC has a rich black cultural future as well. And I think GoGo is emblematic of, of that connection between the past and the future and how current social movements are, are really necessary to, to keep that, that cultural life alive. Um, and again, PFW is really important for doing that. We we play jazz music, we play go-go music on our air, in addition to reporting on these issues. And I think we are one of the very few stations in the district that does that. And we need your support to continue to do that. The number to call is 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739. Or you can go online, wpfwfm.org. Well, Chris, you underscored what I was saying earlier, which is our commitment to our listeners. We know our listeners care about the news and we will continue to broadcast headlines and what's going on in the world today, but also we will dig deeper. That's what we're doing with our journalism. We're digging deeper. What does this story tell us about power, about equality, about justice? And we'll find the people who can talk about that and we will bring them to the air. So once again, Our goal this hour is $500, and you, the listener, you're the one who can help us get there. We are asking you now to call 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739. You can pledge online, anywhere, anytime at wpfwfm.org. Support jazz and justice in our nation's capital. Four years ago in a celebratory moment of DC black history, 
Mayor Muriel Bowser's signed legislation to enshrine go-go as the official music of the nation's capital. The move culminated years of community organizing around the right of D.C. residents to play music, particularly go-go. Here's reporter Chris Finger Drowns on his story on freedom, music, and identity from April 2019. Testimony during last week's hearing was overwhelmingly in support of the effort to make go-go official. Longtime residents shared story after story of how the music enriched their lives and, in some cases, even saved their lives. D.C. activist Ronald Moten kicked off the testimony, reading from a lengthy statement before Council Chairman Phil Mendelson implored him to wrap up his three minutes. Moten spoke from the heart to sum his thoughts up. Washingtonians have, uh, this music has kept our city alive. And before these great things that happened to our city, Go-Go was the lifeline of Washington, D.C. Our children, our culture, they deserve this bill. The future Washingtonians who are coming here deserve this bill. And I'll tell you why. Because music is something that brings people together. And part of the problem is when people come to our city, they do not understand our music and culture. So this bill will not only educate the young people who are coming behind us in schools where we're taken out, it will also educate people who are coming here. And it also will bring back the economy that GoGo once was in Washington, D.C. And it will help keep people off the streets. It will help with crime and violence. And it will help make our city a better place. Tertia Cookie Whiting, the daughter of GoGo legend Chuck Brown, spoke to the outsized impact the music had on residents and on the city itself. Many use our music, some show it respect, some acknowledge us, some don't, unfortunately. But Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers have played all across this city, all over the world, followed by EU, Trouble Funk, Red Essence, just to name a few. Many years ago, I remember when Trouble Funk used to play weekly at Georgetown at the Paradigm, Upper Wisconsin Avenue, which unfortunately now probably would not be allowed just because it's Upper Wisconsin Avenue and in Georgetown. Many of the band members who have raised their families from playing this music have sent their children to college, purchased homes, live productive lives, and something that I know that all of you up on the dais would appreciate, pay taxes to this city by doing so. Black Alley band member Cam Poles spoke to the intrinsic value of go-go music and implored city leaders to sustain that music. I think that this conversation is, is n- not even about love. It is about um, not questioning uh, the right for um, our art, our culture to exist. Go-go is a particular African-American cultural expression, period. And so the same way you will not argue, you do not have to defend the right for Mozart and Beethoven to be played the same way you do not have to defend the right of uh, hip-hop or jazz to exist. It's the same way we should not question the right for go-go to exist. We need to do everything in our power to uh, preserve, not only preserve, but advance the culture. Um, it is just, it's, it's just that simple. When I think of go-go, I think of, um, in, in terms of preservation, I think of the resources uh, that are put into maintaining the Frederick Douglass House over where I live in, um, uh, uh, in Southeast. I think of the Carter G. Woodson home. I think of all of these African-American treasures in the city um, that we, um, you know, we, we fight. We fight to preserve them, but we have support. And in the same way, GoGo needs to be uh, needs to be supported. Natalie Hopkinson is assistant professor at Howard University and author of the books GoGo Live, published in 2012, and A Mouth is Always Muzzled, published last year. She trained her criticism directly on the D.C. Council. So for years, GoGo has been in a state of emergency, and a lot of the people in this room are responsible for that, and they need to accept responsibility for it. Um, the, the Council of D.C. has signed off on policies that have Uh, housing and development policies that have pushed out more than 20,000 black Washingtonians. Um, And then there's also your predecessors on the council. Right here in this chamber in November of 1987, Ward 1 Councilman Frank Smith introduced the so-called go-go curfew law, which barred youth from go-go and other public dance halls. 
but the law excluded corporate movie theaters and places dedicated to European art forms like ballet and operas. As long as you're a teenager not trying to dance with go-go, you could stay out as late as you wanted. And Malika Smith, who was a 15-year-old daughter of Councilmember Frank Smith, testified against her father's go-go curfew bill right here in this chamber too. So more recently, uh, the city has watched music education be stripped from schools. Uh, we've seen the, uh, the ABC boards crack down on go-go go -go club owners, fining them, mom and pop businesses and putting them out of business. Uh, we've also seen the Metropolitan Police Department brag about its go-go report, which criminalized go-go culture and, and led club owners to literally turn conga players away at the door. So I'm gonna wrap this up by saying that GoGo -Go has survived in spite of the Council of DC. GoGo -Go and the affiliated cultural industries have employed hundreds of Washingtonians and it allowed DC to survive mass incarceration, providing jobs, purpose, and creativity. So I think that this is just the beginning of what needs to be done to push back on the muting that powerful people have done to our culture for centuries. And, but I'm really, really excited that for the first time in history to see American lawmakers move with the beat and not against it. Thank you. Hopkinson spoke with Monday Morning QB back in April when the hashtag Don't Mute DC movement was in its early stages. Her discussion of the cultural importance of GoGo -Go is as true now as it was eight months ago. And so, you know, at the end, we, we have a common... Um, you know, common interest in trying to preserve what's left of the chocolate city, and it is considerable. Chocolate people built the city, literally. You know, the labor, the black labor is built in the bricks of every block and building um, in the city. And, you know, our experience, the black experience is, is integral to Washington, D.C., and of course the country. And so, as far as I'm concerned, the Chocolate City is, is Chocolate City forever, you know. And as a practical term, we're still the largest group here. And so, people really need to stop talking about us in, in past tense. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert Drowns.
And that's our show for today. There's still time to become a supporter of this great radio station. Call 202-588-9739 or visit us online at wpfw.org and pledge your support. Rest in peace and power, Askia Muhammad. Thanks to our engineers. I'm Chris Bangert Browns. And I'm Asia Beckham. Thank you for listening and supporting Jazz and Justice Radio in the nation's capital. Collective Voices and the Francis Gregory Neighborhood Library invite you to celebrate Black history through poetry from 3.30 to 5 o'clock p.m. Saturday, February 24th at 3660 Alabama Avenue, Southeast Washington, D.C. as they present African Americans and the Arts. Collective Voices, whose members are Lady Di, Sister Joy, Bernardo, and Billy O'Hara, are known for their messages of social consciousness, inspiration, and empowerment. In addition to their original poetry, the celebration will also feature an exhibit by Washington-area visual artist Jason Keene and conclude with a book signing. This event is free and open to all ages. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. The best in live music entertainment is coming to Bethesda Theater. Peebo Bryson on January 26th and 27th. More info and tickets at BethesdaTheater.com. WPFW is a proud media partner with Bethesda Theater. No social justice issue or movement can escape the spotlight of the Latino Media Collective. The Latino Media Collective delivers consequential coverage from the biggest countries in South America to the smallest enclaves of Central America and the Caribbean and is available on SoundCloud, iTunes Podcast, and Google Play Music. The Latino Media Collective is recorded in WPFW studios and airs Fridays at 1 p.m. on WPFW Washington. On Friday, February 23rd, 8 p.m., Strathmore presents prolific drummer, producer, and composer Micaiah McRaven. Blending jazz, hip-hop, and electronic elements into a modern, beat-driven sound, his latest album, In These Times, is the triumphant finale of a project more than seven years in the making. Inspired by both broader cultural struggles and his personal experience as a product of a multinational, working-class musician community, McRaven has a unique gift for collapsing space, destroying borders, and blending past, present, and future into post-genre, jazz-rooted, 21st-century folk music. Micaiah McRaven, In These Times, One Night Only, Friday, February 23rd. Tickets and details available at strathmore.org. WPFW, Building a Better World, one broadcast at a time. Big announcement. Home Rule Music Festival, in partnership with WPFW, presents an electrifying evening of music, culture, and community. Join us on Friday, February 23rd at Songbird Music House for the Home Rule Music Festival launch party and concert. Doors open at 7 p.m. Event starts at 8 p.m. Songbird is located at 540 Penn Street, Northeast, Washington, D.C. Special performances by the legendary Plunky from Oneness of Juju and the dynamic Brandon Woody's Up Indu. Plus, don't miss the exclusive screening of the captivating Black Fire documentary. Tickets are available at songbirddc.com. That's S-O-N-G-B-Y-R-D-D-C.com. Gil Scott Heron said, The revolution will not be televised. And yet we've seen oppression, suffering, and resistance streamed in real time across this country and around the world, from Palestine to D.C. In times like these, it's imperative to have a station like WPFW 